This episode of Tinfoil Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans. It's a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today? This week, it was my tremendous pleasure to speak with the marvelous Mashama Bailey. If you're listening to this podcast, you already know her from Chef's Table, her James Beard Awards for Best Chef Southeast and Outstanding Chef. Maybe you know her book, Black, White, and the Gray, which she co-authored with her business partner, John O'Morrisano. You may have watched her recently on a TV screen on the back of an airplane seat, which is what I was doing when I texted her to come on the show. Mashama Bailey is everywhere, as she should be. But before all that, she was a food-loving kid growing up in the South, and then the Bronx. She was figuring out what the heck she wanted to do with her life. She was going to cooking school, getting a degree in social work, but she wasn't quite feeling like she had found her place. And then a fateful trip came along that set her on the path to superstardom. Welcome to season one, episode two of Tinfoil Swans, Mashama Bailey and the life-changing pickles. So Mashama, how we're going to be talking all about how you became you. <laughs> and I'm still working on that. I'm still trying to figure that out. But we can talk about who I am today. <laughs> I think that'd be the same person a year from now. <laughs> <laughs> who knows who I'm going to be in 10 minutes from now. But what I always start out asking is, who were you when you were 10 years old? Who's that? When I was 10 years old, I was, in a lot of ways, confident, very curious, very tall for my age. And I was very protective. <laughs> I was the little mama. I was the big sister. I had a brother that was almost five years younger than me, a baby sister that was only a few months old. So I think that I was trying to figure out what it meant to be a big sister when I was 10 years old. And I think my 10-year-old mind thought I needed to be like my mom. And what was that relationship like with your mom? It was loving but it was very strict and I wouldn't say she was distant, but she was taking care of three kids. She was going to school. She had a job. So I found her to be busy and I thought that I wanted to help her. So if she was cooking dinner, I would be in the kitchen with her to help her cook dinner, or I would pick up my brother and sister from school or daycare or I would go to the store for her while she was cooking dinner and I would pick up an ingredient that she needed in order to complete dinner. So I was her helper. And I think at 10, that was very exciting. And then I think by 14, it was empowering, but it was also like, I'm a teenager. So I'm just like, yeah, you know, none of this would be possible if it wasn't for me. <laughs> but what I'm hearing is you've always just had that hospitality thing going on, like wanting to, you know, be of, of use and of service. I think ultimately that's why I started cooking, because I liked pleasing people. I liked 
being of service to people. Yeah, you know that one. And I sort of constructed it as, well, ego, I like the praise <laughs> of it. But really, I just like being there to help someone have their food taste better or help them put their feet up or put some ice in their drink or go to the store and run an errand. I wanted my part in the tribe to be the helper. But I didn't understand how to process a lot of that. And so I become a little resentful when I feel like I'm helping and I'm being taken advantage of. Oh, yeah, that's a hot button one. Because I didn't know how to just give and not expect anything in return. I, I mean, and that's the thing to learn, no matter what kind of relationships you end up with friends, with partners, with anybody in your life, like there are takers, there are givers, there are people who can switch between the two. And there are people who take a lot and some people who it's hard to give things to, they just won't take and it takes a lot of work to figure out where you fit in that and especially recalibrate it with each person. So when you were making these these meals? Where was that coming from? From your own taste? Where were you getting this from? Oh, definitely things that my mom had made. Like I said, she was a working mother. She cooked often and she cooked seasonally, but very casually. So in the summer, we would have sandwiches and salad. In the winter, we would have braised chicken and rice and cabbage and those types of things. And I would help in ways of the cleaning of the things, the purchasing of the things. I would make the drink, right? <laughs> My mom used to do this thing where she would take concentrated orange juice and she would take Kool-Aid and she would we would make a big pitcher of it. So that would be my job. That sounds so good. Or if she wanted to make a dessert, I would cut the strawberries. It's pretty <laughs> good. It's very clever, actually. It was like fruit punch, but, you know, kind of pieced together. It's funny. You're actually the second person who has brought up Kool-Aid because Guy Fieri was talking about having a Kool-Aid stand as a kid. <laughs> and what was your flavor in particular of Kool-Aid? Oh, I really liked orange. Wait, so you were doing like orange on orange there. So orange concentrate and orange Kool-Aid. Orange concentrate, orange Kool-Aid, and then there was, I forget what the red was called. I think it was just red, right? Is that going on the menu at the Gray anytime soon? Because I would drink the heck out of that. So we make thrills at the Gray. And when I was little, thrills were made out of Kool-Aid, fruit juice. Maybe they would throw some like canned fruit cocktail in the concoction. And then they would put them in these, you know, four ounce Dixie cups with wooden sticks in them and they would freeze them. And the kids would knock on the doors of the women who were making these and they would cost a dime or a quarter. So when we moved to Savannah, when I moved back to Savannah to open up the gray, I didn't know what was going to be on the menu, but I knew that thrills were going to be on the menu. I had no idea what kind of food it was going to be. I was sort of just figuring that out. But I was like, the first thing that popped in my head was like, we're going to have thrills. <laughs> <laughs> this makes me so happy. And I apologize for not having been in yet <laughs> or else I would have known that. So you get, you're doing this with Glee when you're 10, you're 
getting crankier about it when you're 14. 14's hard. I don't care who you are. 14's hard. Like, I, I really wish there was a fast forward from like 11 to 17 or something like that, because those are some really hard years. And tell, actually, tell me about you at those ages. What's that feeling like? 11, I was starting to get boobs. So <laughs> I'm starting to feel like a little insecure. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of retreated into myself and I started really kind of focusing in on friends and family. We moved from Savannah to New York when I was 11. So that was a little bit of a culture shock. Tell me about that, please. We moved in with my grandmother and my cousins. It was a beautiful house in St. Albans, Queens, a beautiful neighborhood. And my cousins were living with her. And they were like a little bit older than me, like 13 and 11, but a little bit older than me. And they were like hanging out and... They had all these friends and riding bicycles and doing gymnastics and backflips and all this stuff. And I was this little country girl. And I was <laughs> like, I don't know if I want any of that. And then I sort of got into this protective mode of my siblings because it was just like that clash, right? It was like, we're moving into my father's mother's house and they were already there. So it almost felt like we were stepping in on their territory, so to speak. So that first summer that we were together was definitely like a little bit of a power clash. We were we didn't know my father's side of the family at that point as well as we knew my mother's side of the family. So we were getting to know relatives that we didn't already know. I think that was when I started to feel a little insecure about who I was and what I already knew. And I think going into puberty, that sort of deepened a little bit for me. And there were things that I love to do, like go to the park or talk on the phone with friends or get in the car on the weekends and go hang out at the mall and those types of things that I love to do. But teenage years were hard for me because I think I faded into the background of my teenage years. Well, especially being a new girl somewhere, that's so incredibly hard. You're already feeling like an alien in your own body. And at this point then, are you still cooking for people? Were your flavors from Savannah clashing with what was going on in Queens? When families come together, like getting those food styles to match up isn't really interesting things. So where did you find yourself in that mix? That, that's interesting because my grandmother would always keep the refrigerator really, really full with the groceries. That was her love language, right? She would curse you down from your head to your toe, but she would feed you after. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that I remember very, very vividly, the first summer I moved to New York is we got in the car and we went to Manhattan and we ended up going to Zabar's. Ooh. And <laughs> it was the first sort of real New York City food experience. This was like in the 80s. So New York was still a little grungy. It's still grungy, but it was grungy <laughs> in the 80s. It was like good grunge, you know? And we were on the Upper West Side. And so I remember getting out the car. We walk into this market. It smells like pickles and vinegar and salt and like salty pork. 
And I remember looking at all these big bins of bagels and looking at this big counter with all these different salads and they had seafood salad and all these different types of cream cheeses. And she let us pick out one thing and we all went home and she bought a big bag of bagels and we sat around the breakfast nut table and we ate bagels and cream cheese. And I was hooked after that. I was hooked on, I think I was hooked on food after that. Were you forever after that? craving pickles, craving all of these things. And did you get to keep going back there? We went back a few times. And then we ended up finding this Italian deli in Long Island that my grandmother really liked because we were really on the cusp of Long Island and mm -hmm. Queens. And so we ended up going there for things like that. But the Zabars was maybe a good five-year period between like 11 and 16. And we would go maybe once or twice a year. And we would go drive into Manhattan go get all the bagels, get the fixings and things like that. And, you know, this was on my grandmother's dime. So it was very clear about what the budget was and <laughs> what we were allowed to spend. But I just think that experience in general was the first one that opened my eyes to food that wasn't just my parents or food that was beyond sort of like the traditional things that I had eaten. It was probably one of the more unique things that I'd eaten up until that point was like smoked salmon, you know, lox and cream cheese bagel. Like that was a very unique thing for me at that age. And so, and it was pungent and flavorful and salty and creamy and chewy and nutty. And I just loved it. I remember the texture of the bagel. I remember the day like it was yesterday and I just banked it. I never really thought about it. And then I ended up sort of being this sort of convenience eater because I assumed these responsibilities with my siblings. I would pick them up from school. My parents were really in this kind of like grind hustle mode. I wasn't home every day, but I was home and making sure that there was something to drink or some snack or something for my brother and sister and I to have. And we would make Philly cheese steaks after school, or I would make English muffin pizzas. I love those. <laughs> so I was always, I ended up being this kind of liaison between my parents and getting home and feeding us because we would eat dinner at eight o'clock. That's late for a kid. So if we got home at three, three thirty, we'd yeah. be starving. What was your idea of what a chef was? Julia Child. That was who I thought a chef was. And I kind of thought that until I was like a grown up and I went to cooking school. They were like, oh, so you're in school and we want you to write about a chef that you admire. And I couldn't think of one person that I, I admired that wasn't on TV. Like I didn't have like a real life chef that I was like, I want to be like you. I was like, Jack Pepin, Julia Child, the Frugal Gourmet, like that's where I was with it. And so really it wasn't until I got into cooking school, which is, which is when I started thinking about cooking at restaurants and cooking in a restaurant. It's funny, you know, you're the fourth person I'm talking with this May, Air out of order. Three of you have said that you turned on the TV and watched Jacques and Julia and had that notion. So it's not out of the ordinary that you'd be feeling that. But I'm curious about how you go from this place of I'm doing this sort of maintenance food or convenience. I always like think of that as like maintenance food in my life. And there's a fair amount of that. How did you decide then to go to cooking school? I like to help 
And I think that translated as attention and praise because in my teenage years, I sort of became an introvert. And one thing that I knew that I didn't mind doing was getting in the kitchen and doing certain things, toasting bread, making eggs, sandwiches, or whatever. And when I went away to college, I had to cook for myself. I ended up being introduced to people from the Caribbean and eating from their sort of ideas of what their families, what they grew up on. And that helped to broaden my horizon because it was like, oh, I don't have to have rice with cream of mushroom soup. I can have rice with adobo and red beans. Right. <laughs> so all of a sudden, my flavor profile started switching in college. And I think that curiosity of those flavor profiles helped to open up my idea of what food could be. When I would come home from college, I would make something that my roommates would make or something that my friends would make at a, a party that we were having in college. And my mother was like, this is delicious. And why do you think about doing food? And at that time, I was on the path to be a physical therapist. So I was like, ah, no, I don't want to stand up all the time. And I think I just want to stick with working with people and being helpful. So she said, okay, and she just kind of brushed it off. And then fast forward, maybe three, four years later, did not become a physical therapist, was graduated with a BA in psychology, was working as a counselor in a family shelter and cooking for my coworkers. I just was finding myself having more joy doing that than I was having doing the job that I was hired to do. How old are you at this point? 23, 24. Yeah. And I think it's related to that ego stroking and that praise and that coming out into the light a little bit, right? You cook something, people eat it, they like it, they want to pull out the chef. They want to pull the cook out into the dining room. They want to pull. And I think food allowed me to be sort of pulled into the light so to speak. You know, I, that makes so much sense to me because as a kid being insecure and weird and all this, I knew that I could make people like me if I baked for them. <laughs> I was not ashamed to buy people's love with really good cookies or really good Kool-Aid or whatever it was. But there's a leap from cooking for your friends and family and stuff to thinking like, you know what, I'm going to go to school for this, lay down a whole bunch of money for it. So tell me about that leap that you decided to, to do this. Girl. <laughs> well, it wasn't really a leap. It was more of like a push. <laughs> Who pushed you? <laughs> it was a push off the ledge. So in this environment, in this city and social work environment, because I was an introvert, I don't think I had the best social skills for a very social job, right? My job was working with kids who were preteen, teen kids, after school sessions, homework and stuff like that, engaging them in projects and those types of things. And I was still very insecure. And so I'm like talking to these kids and like trying to hang out, get them motivated. And I think I was average at it, but I really needed support and I didn't have the support. I. I didn't know how to manage or lead the support that was available to me. So long story short, I was terrible at the job. Oh, no. <laughs> I was working in a family shelter. There were these after-school programs for the kids 
in the shelter so the parents could work and do what they needed to do in order to get back out there in their own apartments and stuff like that. And we were providing support for that. And turns out that I just wasn't good at it. And honestly, the person, I forget his name, but there was someone who was up for the job and I ended up getting the job. And as soon as I got the job, I was like, uh, I felt bad. I felt like oh, this no. isn't really the job for me. Fast forward six months later, they were like, you know what? You're fired. Oh, so I got <laughs> fired from this job. It was around the holidays. I was in conversations with a friend. I was already talking about food and, and trying to figure out if I wanted to do that anyway. And so once I got fired from my job, I just waited out the holiday. And after the new year, I went to Peter Pumps Culinary School to apply for a work-study program. I ended up working at this place in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, called the L Cafe. I ended up being a line cook at the L Cafe once I get accepted to the culinary program. I was, like, heating up vegetarian chili. And <laughs> I, I don't even remember what we cooked there. That's the only thing I remember us cooking is the vegetarian chili. So once I got accepted to the work-study program, I ended up working there after classes because I thought I have no cooking experience. I decided to drop what I was doing and go to culinary school. I need to get some cooking experience fast just to see if I liked it. And I got into that kitchen. There was no chef. There was just a menu and a bunch of us cooked it. And there was a person that was, that was a sous chef, but I don't think we took them very seriously. <laughs> and I think that was probably the part that convinced me that I can do the work. But it wasn't until I actually went to my internship at Aqua Grill that I sort of got the fine dining bug or the upscale bug of cooking. We'll be back with more from Mishama Bailey after the break. This episode of Tinfoil Swans from Food & Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced sweet bees honey barbecue chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. My guest today is Mashama Bailey. Your brain and your rhythms and stuff, because you, you were talking about cooking to please and cooking for these things, you know, for all different purposes. The rhythm of a kitchen is such a particular thing and each kitchen is different. But what did it feel like entering into that structure for you? That's that's so interesting because I thought that it was a necessary evil, but I think entering that structure made me revert a little bit back like it did when I was in high school because it was very masculine and very aggressive. There was microaggressions and all these kind of things that people warn you about or all the things we're talking about now being in kitchens. Mm -hmm. So I thought the kitchen sort of culture that has been cultivated over decades and 
I was in that environment in the late 90s, and that was still very prominent and rampant in those types of kitchens. So even though I wanted to cook like that because I thought I was capable, I thought that I was physically and mentally ready to take it to another level. I think there was a point where as I was in school, I realized that I wanted to take this career seriously and I wanted to work in restaurants. I did this research on Black chefs because I was looking for a mentor and that's really when I sort of discovered Edna Lewis and I realized there weren't a lot of Black chefs in restaurants. So I think that I was interested in that path because I knew that there weren't that many in big restaurants, renowned restaurants. I was very interested in learning more about that and learning more about that style of food. So I think that was what sort of pushed me in that direction. But being in that environment caused me to revert back to like a teenage girl a little bit. I understand that. And for, I imagine if people are listening to this podcast, they have some familiarity with the brutality of those kitchens and some of that culture still persists. And the loudest, cruelest voice is often the one that rises to the surface. But like, did you find that you had to play along or be brutal to be able to survive each day? What was your tactic for getting through a day? I think my tactic was to be quiet and to find those nice soft spots that were in the kitchen. The kitchens I've worked in, like at Aqua Grill, the the pastry team was, and also one of the sous chefs were really sort of a soft spot that you can go to if you screw up, the chef got upset. They'd be like, you know what, this is about food. They would kind of set you straight. Like, this isn't personal. This is just the stress and aggravation of what we do here. Because I remember one time I got yelled at. I had broken tweels. I had these sesame seed tweels that we would put on the petty four plate. And just to give you a little backstory, my first job was at Aqua Grill as a pastry plater. That was my first job right out of culinary school. And I broke these twills. I had these twills broken. And I was plating broken twills, right? And my chef was livid. He wasn't cruel. He just was like, would you serve these to your family? And at that moment, I was like, no. <laughs> but at that, I, I don't think I knew the difference before that moment. Right. And then at that moment, it was so clear to me that I wasn't giving them the best possible product that I was making or the best cookie that I had. I was giving them a broken cookie and I was really hurt by that. There was something that wasn't registering in me that wasn't connecting what I was doing to, to the person's experience. And that was a moment where I was like, can I do this? Right. <laughs> It's like, this is hard because everything has to be perfect. This is hard. I, I love to ask people about what their relationship is with perfect and what and if that has transformed for you over time. Is there a difference between what perfect meant at that time and what it means to you now? Perfect is fluid for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect for that time meant visually. And now perfect, it doesn't really mean that much. I'm I'm curious because I know that you ended up in France 
at some point. Where does France fit into all of this for you? So I worked at Aqua Grill and then that, even though I'm like, it did hurt my feelings. <laughs> I was like, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go. Really what it was is that I didn't have a lot of money and I wasn't going to make a lot of money at Aqua Grill and I wanted to go somewhere that I was making more money. So I ended up going to a catering hall and I ended up going around the holidays. The holidays are <laughs> I'm always getting fired around oh, the holidays. No. <laughs> so I, ended I ended up going to this catering hall and I was thinking like, okay, cool. This is great. And they weren't busy. They didn't do the numbers they did the year before. So they had to downsize. And of course, I was one of the first to go. Right. So once that happened, I ended up becoming a personal chef. I found on our job board at school that this family was looking for a chef. And it was really this older woman. And I went and I ended up working with her. I cooked for her five nights a week. And I was working on Park Avenue. And I did that for a long time. I began to feel like I painted, I was painting myself into a corner because I'd only been out of school and working in restaurants for, I don't know, 18 months at the most. Mm. And then I ended up going into personal chefing for like four years. And when I was rounding into the fourth year, I was like, I got to get out of here. Because <laughs> there's only so many meals <laughs> that you can cook for one person. Yeah. For two people and the holidays and that's it. And it just turned into this thing where I was just like, I am so freaking bored. Like I stopped reading cookbooks. Like I just got, I was just bored. So I said, this can't be it. And so I went back to my school and looked at this job board and looking at the board, I found that there was this trip to La Varenne, which was in the Burgundy region of France. And I ended up applying for this externship that was supposed to be for six weeks. And I ended up getting accepted to it. And that's how I ended up going to France. Oh, my gosh. So it was like this really passive aggressive way of quitting my job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm just going to go to France now. <laughs> what did you find there? What was there for you? A resurgence, like a rebirth. We were on a chateau, and we were growing it, and we were picking it, and we were like cooking all of Ann Willen's recipes. And there was this community of female chefs that were there, and this legacy that she had built. It was like a sitting in a charging station. I just started to feel recharged. So when I came back from there, I started to make these connections between. Southern food and French food, Southern way of cooking and the French way of cooking. And I just couldn't shake the connection. And there weren't many dishes that drew that parallel. There's like chicken and dumplings and coco vin. So when I left La Varenne in 2008, I was like, I want to cook in the South. Mm. And I knew then that I wanted to move in the South. My parents had already relocated back to Georgia. So I was like, I want to cook in the South because I think that I can cook really good Southern food that's different from what people are cooking. So before I did that, I needed to like go restack my savings again. So I ended up going back into New York City and working for David Burke and Donatella 
And then I ended up working at the plaza because no one would hire me. I had six years of experience and I was like, I'll be a sous chef. And they were like, you don't know how to cook. <laughs> it's like, being like going back to the starting point after being out of culinary school five years, ended up going back six years, going back to Garmanger and then ended up working my way back up. So I did most of that under David Burke and Donatella. And then when I was ready to move from there, I started asking around and Gabrielle Hamilton sort of popped up and I looked in a restaurant and I knew it from culinary school and I'd never worked with a woman before. And it was important that I did. And now that I look back on it, it was really important in my own development because I do think that I developed really bad communication skills working in those environments that I was working in because I think I became really aggressive. Mm. And I think I was only aggressive really to protect myself, but I think I started to develop some of that aggressive, competitive spirit that was not very good natured. Not that I was going to sabotage you or anything like that, but I definitely wasn't as communal as I thought I was looking back pre-prune versus post-prune. That makes sense. And I mean, it also, you were learning through all these kitchens probably how to be a boss. Because to me, being a chef is equal parts, being able to do the physical execution of all these things and have this vision, but also to be able to build this team and communicate with them. Did you find you were able to, at the end of an aggressive day at work, check that at the door or did you carry it out of the restaurant with you? I think I carried it out of the restaurant with me. Even if I were home and we were doing like a barbecue at my grandma's stuff and people would help me, they'd be like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to help Michelle, but she's going to yell at me. Or she's not going to say please and thank you. And I think I got this, you know, this like really rushed sort of way of working with people. Like this lack of patience, I think, I've developed in those environments. And that's probably a better way to say it. Like, I think I started to lose patience, which then manifested itself as frustration. And it wasn't until we opened up the gray where I was like, oh, you're frustrated because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you're frustrated because you're not prepared. You have someone coming to you asking you for information that you don't have ready. And now you are defensive and insecure and being put on the spot and all these things. So then that frustration is manifesting itself in, in that way. Those parts are triggering and I was yelling at people, you know, and it's just like, what the hell? Because <laughs> I was so insecure about being prepared. I would brush it off, but it, it would go float, 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 float. There would be this kind of burst of manic aggression because I was unprepared. So I'm like, yelling at you for being unprepared, you know? Kitchens are not the healthiest psychological environments. And I mean, you've got a psychology degree too. So are you at this at this time, like trying to work out your own processes in your own head while you're doing this? You know what I was trying to work out? Not trying to like regret any interaction when I walked away. That's really what it was. I would get home and I would lay down and I'd be like, I could have been a little bit more patient with this process. You know, like I just found myself doing these apology tours throughout this kitchen and the restaurant that it was just like, 
okay, that's not them, it's you. And you need to figure out what's setting you off. It's the pressure, fine, we're all under pressure. Is it exhaustion? Fine, we're all tired, right? But that doesn't give me the right to, to blame you for me not preparing you properly. And that's what I was finding that I was doing. I was just sort of like, well, why aren't you ready? Right. And it's like, I'm the prep cook. <laughs> and I'm asking the line cook why they're not ready. I was really taking it out on myself and I was projecting all this onto people that was working for me. So I think there was definitely some phases of me being a tyrant in the first probably year or two, definitely the first year, probably second year as well. Then I started understanding that I needed to prepare people to be successful. Like my job was to make sure that people had a successful experience, whether they were eating at the restaurant, whether they were working at the restaurant. It's my job to make sure that people are successful. What happens now if I come to you and I'm your pastry cook and I Chef, I, I broke all these tweels. What, how's that go now when you're on that side of the conversation? How do you handle that now as opposed to when you are on the receiving end of this? Oh, I, w I would not care. Not that I wouldn't care, but I would say, let's start again. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. And I think that if we were even in the middle of service and that happened, I would say, let's take it off. Let's start it again. Let's 86 the dessert and then not have a conversation about it in this, at the time where you're feeling your most vulnerable and I'm feeling my most stressed. Are you good at being kind to yourself? Are you able to accept kindness from yourself or others? I'm better. It's <laughs> a process. And especially, you know, you're a person in the spotlight who now, you know, you are looking for those people to look up to. And, you know, you find your Edna Lewis. Maybe you find your Patrick Clark. Maybe you find whoever. You're that person now who people are looking to. Is that pressure or is that fuel? What is that for you now? It's fuel. I think if you were to ask me this question last week, I would say pressure. Yeah. What changed? <laughs> if you were to ask me this question the same time yesterday, I would say pressure. And what changed is that I got a phone call last night from someone who works with me and he's been working with me for years. And he called me and he said, I'm sitting at this bar and I just decided to come out and I decided to treat myself and I'm looking around and everyone looks the same. And he said, and I just want you to know that I'm very grateful for the environment that you've created because you're creating an environment that everyone doesn't look the same and everyone and they still feel validated and they feel comfortable in that environment. He never calls me. I didn't know what he wanted. I was like, oh God, <laughs> you know, is he going to quit? Like what's going to happen? And he just called me to just basically tell me how he appreciated working with us. And I appreciated the fact that he's working for a black woman because he feels unique and special in that way. And he saw the beauty in it. 
And I was just like, okay. <laughs> it was a very energizing conversation for me. So now if you're having a low moment, we have a recording of you telling me about this moment and I will play this for you <laughs> at absolutely any time you need because you, I, I see how people regard you and you and your food and the tone that you have set. Everybody everywhere is in awe of you. And when I reached out to you to come on to the podcast. I was watching you on the back of a plane seat because you're in an episode of TV. And what would you say to that 10-year-old version of you who's making the Kool-Aid and all that? Would she believe who you are now? And drinking it too, right? Drink the Kool-Aid, girl. Your own Kool-Aid. <laughs> Drink the Kool-Aid, little girl. Drink your own Kool-Aid. I would say to her, don't forget to be kind and don't be afraid to show people who you are and don't forget to be kind. That's what I would say to her. I think that's so lovely. Now, is there anything that you want people to know about that nobody ever thinks to ask you? What's an outlet that I like to do or what's my favorite outlet other than cooking? What is it? It changes. <laughs> I, I've, I've been... Right now it's pottery. Okay, because I've been witness to you doing an archery or was it archery or axe throwing? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> you led an event. Yeah, that was like a one-time thing. <laughs> I just picture you with an axe in hand yeah. at all times. <laughs> but right now, listen, that's not a bad way to be. It's not you at know? all. She, yeah, that's a good way to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's your next restaurant is you're having one of those axe throwing restaurants. <laughs> With all the pottery that you've made. Exactly, exactly. Or like you got to cut your own wood before you can eat here or something. <laughs> I love this. Cause I think of you as a, as a deeply creative soul and, and makes me so happy to think that you're making pottery. Okay, one more question. When you hear tinfoil swans, <laughs> does that ring anything with you? When I hear the phrase tinfoil swans, I think about 80s movies that were like base of restaurants. So I think about trading places and that kind of restaurant scene where he's in the fancy restaurant <laughs> because that was my association with fine dining. <laughs> I'm picturing you cooking for that woman for many years and then leaving all the leftovers in a tinfoil swan for her. <laughs> Thank you. Like, I loved all your answers and I just have a better picture of your heart. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to do this. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Mashama Bailey. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. You can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. When I say us, I mean everybody involved in this podcast. Thank you so much to our production team, Lottie Le Marie, Dominique Arciero, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Next week, our guest will be Anthony Porosky. Until then, be well, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>